0: Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Friday, November the 4th. And you may be aware that there's a fairly big election taking place next week in the United States of America. So this podcast is coming to you from none other than the iconic historic Grand Central Station in the center of New York City. For me, I think of Cary Grant running away from the United Nations building in North by Northwest and countless other movies too. And I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Aaron Van Dorn, from our New York editorial office. Aaron, welcome, and first of all, just just paint a picture about this iconic spot we're in in Grand Central Station.
1: Hello, Richard. We're standing here in the main concourse of Grand Central, underneath the big vaulted ceiling with the Constellation and stars painted on it, underneath the big Art Deco chandeliers, and across from the leaderboards, telling us where everything's leaving, uh, to and from up the Hudson Valley.
0: And where is it leading in terms of next week? That's the $64 million question. A few things to mention. The main focus of this podcast, actually, is not going to be about the bitter rivalry going on between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, we're trying to keep the level of debate quite high and we're focusing very much on, I think, an essential issue concerning US healthcare, not just relating to the election next week, but way into the future as well. And that is this issue of health inequity in the United States and the social determinants of health, which we're going to be discussing in a couple of podcasts, including this one. But before we do, we do need to mention a few things that are happening this week in the Lancet. We need to first of all mention that we are publishing our latest editorial on the US election, which is called Aaron, America Decides. And basically it's it's a summary, isn't it, of, of comparing Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton's views on the healthcare system.
1: That's right. It's really looking at what the policy proposals are and what America can expect from whichever way they choose. Is what direction will be going in underneath the administration of Hillary Clinton or of Donald Trump?
0: Also, Susan Jaffe, a Washington, D.C. correspondent, has gone into more detail of the healthcare proposals of the two presidential candidates in the World Report section. I think most people know the arguments. Hillary Clinton would continue the work of Barack Obama. She would seek to continue the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, which we must say is fraught with difficulty at the moment, particularly as we're in a new season of the insurance markets opening here in America November the 1st as, as the beginning of the next role of enrolment for the insurance markets. And Aaron, we heard yesterday Republicans talking in Philadelphia, where they've been campaigning, rubbing their hands with glee as they announced it, uh, price hikes and insurance premiums and calling for the end of Obamacare. It was quite strong stuff, wasn't it?
1: It absolutely was. And a lot of what comes next depends upon where we're going to go and who, what the results of the election are, who takes control of the Congress and specifically who takes control of the House and the Senate. Because a lot of the fixes that Clinton wants to make to uh, Obamacare are going to require a lot of buy-in from the Congress. And if she has Democratic majorities in the Senate, and if she has Democratic majorities in both the Senate and the House, it'll make her job easier or more difficult, depending on what's going forward. And of course, as we heard in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, on Tuesday, Trump has a set of policy proposals that he's been touting since March, which are not very well fleshed out, or at least he has not bothered to share them with us.
0: And can we just clarify for non-American listeners, King of Prussia is a place in Philadelphia. It's not another name for Donald Trump. What the Republicans were saying yesterday, unsurprisingly, they were completely trashing the Affordable Care Act. They see it as something they want to repeal as soon as they get into power, if they get into power. Donald Trump actually mentioned that he would call a special session of Congress, if he becomes president, to repeal and remove the Affordable Care Act. So the point being, Aaron, as you've just said, if the balance of power in the Senate and the House of Representatives is not favorable to the Democrats, then if, even if Hillary Clinton is made president, if the Democrats get power at the White House, they're going to need to have the balance of power in Congress, otherwise the future of the Affordable Care Act and the broader health care reforms of the United States are going to struggle, aren't they?
1: Well, there's a lot of things that Clinton can do, even without buy-in from Congress. There are things that she can do as an executive that would have some changes, and there are things that she can do as the executive to change it. But without buy-in from Congress, it's going to be very difficult to make the changes that Obamacare might need to go forward.
0: Well, enough of that. We're now going to focus on an interview we conducted a couple of days ago in a slightly quieter area in the lovely surrounds of Mount Sinai Health System, where we discussed with a leading global health expert based here in New York, this crucial underlying issue of the social determinants of health. Never before has that been so important in a landscape like the United States of America and its health care.
2: My name is Prabhjit Singh, and I'm the director of the Arnold Institute for Global Health at Mount Sinai as well as the chair of the Department of Health System Design and Global Health at Mount Sinai, the ICANN School of Medicine and Mount Sinai Health System.
0: Can you tell us about your role here, your department, your role within this organization and more broadly within the Mount Sinai Health System?
2: I came to Mount Sinai last year. I was a professor of international affairs at Columbia University, but at the same time I was training to be a primary care doctor here in Harlem, New York. So I had these opposite ends of the spectrum, thinking about international issues mostly around healthcare care in low and middle income countries. And at the same time, I was looking at the realities of what it takes to be healthy in America in a poor neighborhood uh, in 2016, uh, between 2011 and 2016. And what it really did for me is shift my perspective to thinking about the actual organizations that are charged with delivering care. At that time, Mount Sinai Health System just became the largest health system in New York. And I came to both lead its global health program as well as actually to think about how do we design health systems? What is their relationship with the neighborhoods around them? And what does it actually mean to build high-performing care models in that context?
0: We've got to remember that we do have an election coming up here. um, And I would just like to ask you about that because although health... And healthcare has not been a dominant issue in the election discourse. Where do you see American healthcare at the moment, given the Affordable Care Act came onto the statute book in 2010? It's being implemented. So, in terms of where it's got to, what's your view on, on what the Obama administration has done for uh, healthcare in this country?
2: You know, first of all, I just want to say that it's really actually an exciting time to be in American healthcare. The Affordable Care Act, as well as a whole range of other sort of market forces, you have to remember that the American healthcare system is about 50 percent public, 50 percent private. They mix in odd and sometimes strange ways and create pressures and forces that manifest themselves on poor and rich communities in uh, America in very different ways. The title goals of the Affordable Care Act, including its affordability, have come under question. But what is not disputed is that we have, in fact, moved towards a more universal health coverage. What I think is more contested and part of what makes this time very interesting to be on the ground in health systems, in neighborhoods, is a recognition that clinical care, $3 trillion of it that we're paying for in the U.S. healthcare care system, nearly 20 percent of our GDP is in fact not making us healthier. Over the course of the next 10 years, we anticipate spending about a quarter of our GDP on healthcare, and I think all signs point us to not necessarily becoming healthier. So in some sense, we've tipped off a process that's about costs, about what constitutes high value or good care, and I think that we're finding that the answer is fairly challenging, and it's going to require a significant transformation of our of healthcare in America in order to answer it, uh, answer that question in a way that really is satisfying to Americans.
0: And relating that back to the health system here in Mount Sinai, I'm guessing demographically, Mount Sinai health system must be a, f- a fascinating place to work because you're here in. in this great city, New York, and you've got within the health system some of the wealthiest parts of the city and
2: some of the poorest. Is that right? So how does that impact on, on your work? I think it's actually one of the most amazing things about working here. Mount Sinai actually extends across all of the boroughs. But if you just look at Manhattan, you've got the bottom part of the island, which has the gleaming towers, the financial districts, midtown, coming up into the beautiful areas of Central Park and then moving on into a really rejuvenating Harlem area and further north into the Bronx, into Washington Heights, one thing that is indisputable is that health outcomes essentially drop and sometimes plummet as you're moving to the north of the island. And what's correlated with that is income as well. If you actually look at the Upper East Side next to East Harlem, two zip codes which, Harla- which Mount Sinai Hospital straddles You have one of the richest zip codes in the country and one of the poorest, and we sit right in the middle taking care of both. I think the major take-home for me is how do you design a health system in that context? We have to deal with the inequities that our island, our nation represents, and at the same time, we have to make sure that the quality of care, the usefulness of that care in people's lives, which are so different on different parts of the island— are in fact moving towards some north star of better health in ways that helps them kind of live a healthier life. I think it's pretty clear to me that in some ways we're starting to see two different type of health system designs emerge. We see a type of health system designed for poor, low-income Americans, which needs to be much more integrated with housing, with employment opportunities, with some of the other challenges that they Uh, have in their lives in order to not only live healthier, but have better opportunities for their children. And on the other side of the island, so to speak, you have a population that's looking for convenience, for um, very technologically advanced care, all of the sort of commercial advances in design and and user interactions that make for a positive feel of a consumer product And these are significant forces that are in tension and play out every day in uh, our work.
0: Do you see the future then as as actually we've got to... um, or the, the, the healthcare system's got to be tailor made to these different populations. You can't create a one size fits all. You can't expect people to buy into insurance if the well if the insurance doesn't exist or it's too expensive. People are going to be are not, are not going to be covered. That that cuts us into this debate that's going on about the public option. What's your view on on, on a publicly financed uh, health insurance system for lower paid or poorer American people?
2: If you'd asked me this question ten years ago. Uh, Fifteen years ago when I was in school, uh, I would have really strongly said that we ought to have really no difference in the health system or the health care that we give to any American. And over the last uh, many years taking care of people in Harlem but also, in fact, seeing patients on the Upper East Side, you really start to realize that the needs of the person – And if we think about that famous quote by Peabody, in order to take care of the patient, you must first listen to them. You know, you really realize that these needs are actually quite different. Instead of necessarily prescribing that we need two separate systems, which smacks of an earlier era that uh, I think uh, we're all working to move beyond, I think we're really asking a question of what does it mean to tailor – health uh, healthcare system or the services to the, to the needs of the person, especially when they extend beyond healthcare itself. Where insurance comes into all of this is a related but slightly different matter than how care is actually designed, executed, and implemented. Low-income Americans do get publicly financed health care through states.
0: Through Medicaid. But, but then there's going to be people just above that who aren't going to be covered by Medicaid.
2: And people, frankly, that are still uninsured, like in the city of New York. And I do have followed very closely the, I think, very thoughtful line of work by Jacob Hacker at Yale, who is considered to be the grandfather of the public option. And I do think, at least when the Affordable Care Act was enacted, it was a significant loss to not have the public option at that time. Today, I still think that it's an important uh, uh, piece of legislature that we should work to put on the table. But I think it's very important that we explain and share it in the American context as not just uh, another step towards fully publicly financed healthcare. I think it's an important incremental uh, addition that will balance out what we have today. But I would not necessarily be supportive of a, uh, you know, fully public, uh, publicly s- implemented and, and financed healthcare system.
0: That's interesting. And um, part of your work with your global health hat on is you, you analyze health systems, don't you, abroad, and, and can you explain how, how you've been able to use knowledge gained from other health systems internationally to the work you do here and how that could potentially impact on your view as to, as to how future U.S. Uh, health delivery could be shaped because of the experience of other countries?
2: When mostly people look at health care systems across the world, most of my colleagues who are scholars immediately go to the financing and insurance landscape. My experience has really been in a lot of low and middle income country settings where there necessarily has not been enough financing or there isn't insurance products. Instead, you really have to ask the question of, well, what is required to reduce mortality, to uh, address morbidity? And what you start to realize, or at least what I have taken away from my work in sub-Saharan Africa and Brazil and India, is that you really need very close to client health systems, community health workers, mobile technologies, excellent primary care networks, um, and then the judicious presence and use of higher level care. Most importantly, I've really seen health as part of a broader sustainable development agenda, which includes a focus on the environment, infrastructure, education, employment. I think that you know when you start to translate this into policy, these end up becoming very big, complicated national discussions. But mm-hmm. if you go to a neighborhood or a village or a town, you actually start to see that, first of all, these issues are deeply interrelated. People do need to, on a very practical level, be supported in their health on a day-to-day basis. And they just need to know what it takes to escalate their issues across a medical pathway from their context of their work, their, their home. And they don't necessarily need to understand all the complicated financial and insurance mechanisms that are around them that we spend so much time discussing. Just to be more succinct, my work abroad has really shifted my view not to so much how do we finance the care, but what actually constitutes high-performing, very responsive and ultimately effective care at that street level. We know from both empirical experiments, data with new coverage, and just the experience of people on an everyday basis that simply having health insurance or even sometimes access to care is not enough. A very practical example is that if you are a newly diagnosed diabetic and in a 15-minute visit a doctor tells you you need to shift your lifestyle and what you're eating and gives you a list, you've gotta go home and figure out how to implement all of that in in your life every day Or, you know, if you stick to what you've been doing, you're you're just going to come back to the next visit and have your insulin dose adjusted. And in many ways, these represent two starkly different choices for us as a healthcare system, a healthcare system that specializes in the adjustment of, you know, medications and things like insulin. Or do we see it as part of our work to actually ensure that the advice that we give, which we know has a great impact, should be incorporated in, into people's lives and they should be supported in doing so as a matter uh, of course in our work as a health system. I think when you start thinking in that direction, it becomes very important to start thinking about who are our partners out there, who in the social sector do we need to work with, and what does it take for those relationships to be a high-fidelity we feel confidence in them, and they actually constitute a system unto themselves.
0: This whole area of the focus on prevention and public health versus the focus just on treatment, again, relating that back to your work here in Mount Sinai Health System, can you just explain some of the ideas, some of the community programs that are operating in this health system?
2: What's really important to know is that when the, uh, there was clear shift uh, in the healthcare markets in the, in the United States towards broader coverage to ensuring that uh, as, as many people as possible would be covered. Uh, there was also a shift in how payments took place. We moved from paying people, f- doctors for procedures. Fee for service. Fee for service mm-hmm. to what we call paying for value or outcomes.
0: And this is the bundled approach, is it?
2: There is a few different approaches. One of them is bundled. The other is to take risk on an entire population, financial risk, meaning that if you if a hospital system takes care of a, a, a group of people for less money than they would, uh, the insurance company would have had to spend otherwise, then they keep that and then can reinvest it. Um, and if they deliver care in a manner that's very expensive, then they have to, it's at their risk, at their financial risk. What's important is that Mount Sinai is, is probably the fastest moving towards population health, which in our, uh, in our vernacular in the U.S. setting really oftentimes speaks to how we take insurance to be value-based, to be capitated, as opposed to fee-for-service. The whole system has started to shift to the mode of saying, well, what does it take to to ensure that you know taking care of people across New York, New York City is not costly, that their outcomes are good? And it's really shifted the conversation outside of very expensive healthcare facilities and hospitals to primary care clinics and to neighborhoods. There's a whole set of innovation and basic systems that need to be put in place. A, we need to know who who is it that we're responsible for? Usually if you're a doctor or a hospital, you just waited for people to show up. Now we actually need to track who we're responsible and who's responsible to us in the neighborhoods where they live, work and play. And in that setting, we need to make sure that, the example I gave you earlier, that diabetic who got 15 minutes of advice, they actually have a health coach, for instance, who's able to work with them on their, uh, their goals and also address other issues that are stopping them from being as healthy as they could be. Really what you're looking at is a whole set of questions around what is the boundaries of healthcare in this new population health environment? How much should we be doing? Should we be taking care of people's housing or should we be facilitating that or should we just recommend that that's an important part of their care or is that just not our business? And so I think you're seeing a dialogue opening up in the U.S., but also really here at Mount Sinai Health System about really what is our primary responsibility, who should we be partnering with, and what does it mean for us to be successful? All I know is that the answer is very different than it was 10 years ago when it just said show up, do a procedure, get billed. Today it really is a much more thoughtful dialogue and there's a lot of questions that are emerging as a result.
0: Fascinating discussion. We must draw it to a close. It's a pleasure being here in this wonderful building here at Mount Sinai. Dr. Prabjot Singh, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet.
2: Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation.